If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Jennifer McQueen. Here, Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. We've got a jam-packed show. Uh, hope you hang around for it. Lots going out. Uh, lots going on, rather. Uh, zero admission ad- admission rather vehicles coming by 2035. They say. Uh, what else we got? Uh, 69%. Uh, in a new Ipsos poll say that uh, the Prime Minister should resign in the next year. However, only 28% believe that he will. Uh, we're going to talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. And we're going to try to shed some light, too, on the Palestinian-Israeli situation and what is going on in the protests, which we all know Canada is a land of immigrants, and, and you're certainly free to protest here. But at what point does it cross the line uh, when we're seeing, in, you know, in situations like Toronto's Eaton Center, uh, you know, where we're, we're seeing people being harassed, we're seeing people feel threatened, be threatened, and even uh, police officers. Uh, being threatened. At what point does that cross the line? Because I think if you or I did that, it would be very much a different scenario. So it's going to be fascinating to see where this discussion goes and uh, where we go moving forward in all of this. But uh, clearly, uh, I think this has got to a tipping point where, uh, you know, we have to start... Uh, we have to start regaining control of uh, of our cities and towns and such. And again, for me, this is not about uh, Palestinians against Israelis. This isn't one religion versus another religion. This isn't the left versus the right. This is uh, freedom and democracy versus uh, authoritarian terrorism. So, um, you know, either you're on the side of freedom and democracy or or you're not and and either you're promoting the other or you're not so uh we have to find out where actually the lines are where everybody stands on all of this because right now there just seems to be a lot of yelling and screaming going on and no one seems to be really asking the important questions like uh, uh you know who do you support who don't you support where do you see this going uh moving forward and when it gets to the point where um you know, we're seeing we're seeing disrespect for Canadian laws in Canadian cities, then then obviously uh, something has to change. So we'll talk about that coming up over the course of the show. And on a brighter side, Royal Botanical Gardens, talk to them about their Christ, uh, Christmas festivities and what they've got going on over the next uh, little while. Also uh, going to talk about international students, foreign workers, and how that is affecting population. We'll talk about that poll with Daryl Berker of Ipsos in regard to uh, you know, if there's if there's ten people in a room, seven seven of them want a different prime minister. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, going to bring in David Booth uh, from Driving.ca in regard to zero emission vehicles on the roads of Canada by 2035 and how close we are to that. And are you one of those lucky people that get to travel over the course of the winter holiday or uh, certainly the Christmas holiday that is coming up? Uh, a lot different than it has been in the last couple of years. Hopefully some of the tensions and, and uh, stress points have left. We're going to talk about that coming up, although it will be an incredibly busy time. All right, well, if you're looking for a winter wonderland and Christmas or the next best thing, boy, oh boy, uh, go through the doors at the Royal Botanical Gardens. I think they have found it. Nancy Rowland is with us, CEO of the Royal Botanical Gardens and here now. Nancy, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Great to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, what does it look like there? I can just imagine. <laughs> well, it looks spectacular in the evening when all the lights are on. Um, a little gloomy today, so we'd appreciate a little bit of that white stuff you were talking about to bring a little bit more <laughs> really? festiveness to the season. Get rid of the bit of the gray and bring in a little bit more of the white. Uh, well, you know, obviously, uh, the great thing about Royal Botanical Gardens, you always don't need the weather on your side. Uh, so what have you got going on indoor versus outdoor? What what can we see if we show up there this season? Lots going on, both indoors and outdoors. We have an uh, interactive light exhibit in Hendry Park. And there you can see singing trees where you can sing Christmas and holiday um Um, carols and have the tree respond to your voice. We also have these amazing hanging lanterns and snow globes um, with all interesting characters inside. 
um, when you come indoors, um, lots to see as well, everything from seasonal displays um, to really great um, food and beverage opportunities. So those that may not know, Nancy, what, what's the objective? What's behind Royal Botanical Gardens? What's your, what's your mantra? What's your objective here? Well, our objective is really to connect um, people to nature and to um, plants. Um, and we do that um, year-round. Um, obviously, people think about us during the summer and um, fall and spring, but we also have things happening year-round. Um, indoors in the Mediterranean Garden, you can visit um, the different collections that we have in that space. Uh, you can come and see the botanical train. Uh, you can see poinsettias in all different shapes and sizes throughout the indoors. And really, we're always looking to connect um, people to the stories behind the plants. Um, and so great opportunities year-round. And, you know, even on a gray day, boy, uh, certainly things pick up once you go inside. Absolutely. Um, lots of um, um, activities um, for the entire family to enjoy. Great opportunity for people to um, have a date night um, as well. Um, also, interestingly enough, we have fire pits um, outside um, with um, seating and you can grab a beverage, sit outside by the fire and uh, enjoy the evening with friends uh, and family. Wow, tell us more about that. Uh, you certainly see that at, at various, uh, you know, events, whatever, winter festivals and such. Uh, talk a bit more about that. Yeah, so as you walk through the garden and you see the different light installations, you'll come across these fire pits. And they're really an opportunity for, um, one, to warm up. Uh, and two, an opportunity to just, you know, have a bit of a rest. Um, the weather's been really fantastic this year, allowing people to really enjoy the outdoors. And, uh, you know, we see everything from, you know, families um, sitting around the fire to couples grabbing a glass of wine or some mulled wine and, and, and sitting and enjoying the evening. So uh, talk a bit more about outside, because obviously this time of the year, you think, um, you know, obviously weather and so on, not as much to do or see. But again, lots of places to walk, paths, that sort of thing. Absolutely. So when you go out into Hendry Garden, as you make your way through um, the trail and look at the different light installations, you come across the uh, Rose Garden Tent. Um, which is an opportunity to go inside. We have some vintage holiday films playing in that area, uh, an opportunity to um, step out of the cold again, enjoy some time in that space before you resume along the trail and visit the different uh, installations that you see across the site. Obviously, with the Royal Botanical Gardens, as you said, uh, the botanical is the idea. Something is always blooming. How does it change this time of year? Obviously, we obviously, you know, assume poinsettias and such, but, but talk a little bit about what's, what this season is like. Um, the season's really interesting. Um, you know, in addition to Winter Wonders, um, also a great spot to visit is the Rock Garden, um, which is, you know, purposely built to be a year-round garden, has a lot of visual interest, and you see um, things in bloom this time of year that you wouldn't see if you visited uh, during the summer. So, you know, if you come to um, Winter Wonders, there's a great evening experience. If you come during the day, there's a holiday train that goes through um, Hendry Park. You can visit the Rock Garden and walk through the beautiful trails and be immersed in um you know, just a very scenic, lovely walk, as well as the um, Arboretum and some of our trails um, are all still very accessible this time of year. All right. So give us the details on uh, Winter Wonders, how yep. we can access that, uh, times, that sort of thing. Yep. Winter Wonders runs Thursdays through Sundays um, and is on until January the 7th. Um, the hours are 5 p.m. till 10 p.m., it's time ticketed, so everybody is encouraged to visit rbg.ca to see the different times and to um, book and come and spend an evening with us. All right, rbg.ca, rbg.ca to find out more. Nancy Rowland with a CEA of the uh, CEO rather of the Royal Botanical Gardens. There, winter wonders at the RBG on now. Nancy, thanks so much for the time. Good luck.
Okay, take care. Interesting article in the Globe and Mail. Mikhail Scuderud is the author. It came out last week. Canada must stem the surge in temporary foreign workers and international students. I'll read the first paragraph. Uh, recent years have seen unprecedented increases in Canada's non-permanent resident population, far surpassing increases in annual admission of new permanent residents. The unbalanced growth in Canada's temporary and permanent Im- uh, migration inflows will be inevitably result uh, will inevitably result in a growing undocumented population in forced deportations. Both developments risk inflaming Canada's immigration politics and undermining public confidence in the immigration system. To talk more about this, Mikhail Scuderud is with us, Professor Economics, University of Waterloo, Director of the Canadian Labour Economics Forum and a fellow in residence at the C.D. Howe Institute and here now. Mikhail, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. So, Mikhail, how have things have how have things changed here? Because many are, you know, whether it's uh, stress on healthcare, whether it's stress on housing, uh, obvi- obviously population has gone up. Whether it's new immigrants coming into this country, which is obviously a land of immigrants, or now we're seeing more and more uh, chatter about students. What's different now? How has it changed? A whole lot has changed uh, in this kind of post-pandemic area, era especially. But I think the biggest thing is what you suggested there is that we've had a much bigger increase in the number of people living in Canada that don't have permanent residency status. So the two big groups are international students and temporary foreign workers. And those inflows have increased much faster than the number of new permanent residents. I think that's the biggest change in what we're seeing now. Why is that an issue? Well, because, you know, ultimately, large numbers of these non-permanent residents that are making decisions to come and live in Canada on these temporary permits are, are motivated by sort of the dream of making a transition to permanent residency. And, and so they have a you know really high willingness to pay for that. I mean, we, t- we tend to take for granted how lucky we are to be permanent residents in Canada. But, you know, around the world, there's a massive willingness to pay for that. And the way that, that non-permanent residents, these students and foreign workers, pay for it is through very high tuition fees and, and accepting kind of crappy jobs with low wages and, and poor working conditions in the hope of getting onto that pathway to PR status. And I think what's happened is, is that there's a, a feeling in the kind of international community that the chances of being able to make that transition, especially if you're a lower skilled worker, have improved. And, and so there are more and more willing people to the more and more people willing to sort of try their luck in that that lottery of being able to get PR status. And that leads to larger inflows. How long has uh, being an international student been a path to citizenship? I mean, is that how this is being sold? So th- that that has been around, you know, there was a very, let's, let's put it this way, there, two decades ago, there was a very deliberate policy push to try and push immigration away from selecting new immigrants from abroad to saying, let's bring people here as students. Then they're going to have less, fewer of these credential recognition issues if they have Canadian educational credentials. And then we'll sort of, once they get here, then we'll screen them and we'll pick sort of the best of the best who appear to be able to find jobs that are commensurate with their schooling and they will become the new permanent residents. But for various reasons related to kind of what I was just trying to explain is that that, that you know, sometimes a good thing becomes too good of a thing. And it's, it's mm. exploded to something that clearly is unmanageable because it's not capped. This is the, unlike the, the number of new permanent residents that are every admitted every year, which are capped, they're mm-hmm. targeted, and there's a fixed number. The number of these temporary residents isn't capped. It's completely supply-driven. Supply there's no limit to how many. And so now you get this big un, unbalancing of the two groups, and, and I think that's what worries us. Uh, we were talking last week about universities perhaps becoming more uh, uh, too dependent on international students just through the increased prices uh, that they pay to, to come here and such. Uh, is this driving this surge as well? Oh, the surge is definitely not in the university, Scott. I mean, overwhelmingly, we, we put out some, I, I got my hands on some 
some data, uh, very recent data. So from all of 2022 and the first four months of 2023, I have the number of study permits issued to, at the level of the individual schools. And I'll tell you, nationally, the surge is overwhelmingly Ontario colleges. So mm. Conestoga College, for example, is just, you know, they, they in over this, like, what is 15-month period, they were issued 31,000 study permits for foreign students. So this is not universities. These, these are overwhelmingly mm. Ontario's college, community college system. So uh, do, what needs to happen to correct this, Mikhail? Is it a, ta- is it a case of t- uh, tapping the brakes or is it a case of, no, there's a flaw in this template here. We have to change this. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's kind of the, the latter. I mean, our instinct is to say, well, we've got to cap these inflows. And, and so then the question becomes, well, how do you do it? You know, like the yeah. University of Waterloo, how do you decide, well, how many foreign students should they be allowed and how many should Conestoga College and how many should McMaster University be allowed? That's pretty hard to do because the reality is part of this program works really well. It is able to attract some really great foreign talent. And if we can retain those folks, that, that there's huge upsides to that. So I would argue the better policy is actually to think more clearly about what the incentives are that are pulling so many, it's like a magnet pulling all these foreign students to come to Canada. And I think the big, two big pieces of that are these kind of ad hoc programs where what we've done is we've shifted away from a skilled immigration program to one that's focused on plugging holes in lower skilled labor markets. So our, the, mm. the way we allocate those permanent residency right. slots is increasingly giving priority to people who are relatively less skilled. And so that attracts foreigners. It says, you know, I'm not so skilled, but I might actually have a chance to get PR status. So I'm going to try my luck. And the other thing is we are, we've gotten rid of all restrictions on work activity. So international students can work as many hours as they want while they're studying. And that says to a lot of international students who are from, you know, would have normally would have difficulties would they come now and say, well, I, I, I don't really need to go to class. I, I, I mean, I can just get my study permit, which is a de facto work permit. And then I'll just work here and get my degree and, and get on this pathway to PR. So I think the incentives we've created are a bit perverse. Where do you think this is going? We only got a few seconds left, Mikhail. Where do you think this is going? Because obviously this is becoming more obvious to more Canadians. That, that's a, you know, I'm not a policymaker and that, that's the million dollar question, Scott. Yeah. Um, I think where this is going is going to depend a lot on what happens to politics at the federal level and whether the current government, who's clearly, you know, it's their policies that in, in large part have pushed us in this direction, um, whether the, they, they remain in power or not. I mean, I think, I think ultimately depends in, in, on that in a large way. Mikhail Skudrud with us, Professor, Economics, University of Waterloo, Director of the Canadian Labour Economics Forum, fellow in resident C.D. Howe, and latest from last week in the Globe and Mail, Canada must stem the surge in temporary foreign workers and international students. Uh, Mikhail, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me, Scott. New Ipsos polling out. Most think Trudeau should resign in 2024. The majority don't think that he will. Uh, 69% of Canadians think Trudeau should step down in 2024. Six in 10 don't believe that he will uh, as a result. Uh, let's talk more about it. Daryl Brooker with the CEO of Ipsos polling and here now. Daryl, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing great, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So, Daryl, is it safe to say that Canadians want a new prime minister for Christmas? Yeah, they do. And and it's been consistently strong for a few months now. Um, uh, and I haven't seen numbers like this for a prime minister's uh, departure or enthusiastic about a prime minister's departure since Brian Mulroney back in the early 1990s. So it's, it's, it's that level. Now, we have heard uh, over the last week or so that the numbers have looked like they've peaked for some. Um, you know, things were leveling out a bit. Uh, are you seeing any of that or is it still, you know, the trend going the way it has been in the last several weeks? Uh, no, there was one poll that showed something a little bit differently. Yeah. Every other poll shows pretty much what we have. All right. So uh, let me ask you this question, Daryl. Do opinions of Canadians change this time of year? You know, once you get into December, into the holiday, do people care more about it, less about it, depending on the situation? Do our opinions change at this time of the year? I think people get a little bit more reflective. Uh, They think about the year that we've been through, and then they start thinking about the year that's to come. Uh, 
So uh, just like we do in many aspects of our lives, when we go through the Christmas season and we kind of sum up what uh, what we've been through, and then we start thinking about the new year, uh, maybe about some of the goals that we have or some of the things that we want to achieve, we start looking around at other things, like, for example, our politicians and what we think about them and what we think about another year under their leadership might be. And I, th- I think that uh, we become somewhat more reflective, and I think you're seeing that in these numbers. So, in other words, there are things you could probably do that make you happy, you forget about it, but other things that remind you how bad it or tough it is. Yeah, it really is, you know, up and down the line. I mean, if I, I can't find a thread to pull here that says anything mm-hmm. positive about the, the incumbent government. Now, I'm supposed to say, uh, you know, anything can happen, and, yeah. and that's true. Anything can happen, but it, it would be something that's unpredictable at this stage. Uh, what does it say when uh, 69% say they want a new prime minister, but 6 in 10 don't believe that he'll step down? What do you read from that? Well, well they probably have heard somewhat um, him saying that he had no interest in leaving, which he's been quite vociferous about. But the other thing is we really haven't had many much experience with prime ministers leaving of their own accord. They tend to get defeated in election campaigns. So <laughs> yeah. the idea that a prime minister would just leave without going through an election campaign is a fairly um, recent idea or a fairly novel idea is what I should say. I mean, the last one that left of his really of his own accord was, uh, um, was Brian Mulroney. Back in uh, in 1992, I mean, even Jean Chrétien uh, left not because he wanted to leave, but because he was pushed out of the job by uh, his former fi- finance minister Paul Martin. Every other one has been defeated. Anything to suggest if the liberals uh, liberals did bring in another leader that this could change directions for them? No, this is this is Justin Trudeau's party. I mean, another leader with a sufficient amount of time might be able, and somebody, by the way, who isn't part of the current uh, administration might have some potential to be able to do that because they can establish a bit of distance between uh, uh, this government and what the next uh, what, what the next version of the Liberal Party and the Liberal government would be. But um, uh, th- that's still a, a pretty long shot. This 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 is pretty much Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party. Uh, many have talked about runway if this keeps going till 2025. Uh, if they are to break away and, and get something that's completely different, not, you know, the Christia Freelands or somebody already from, uh, you know, in the Trudeau ranks and such, how late is too late? Are they, how, how long is that runway? Oh, I, I think that they would probably have to be doing something by, uh, by you know, the, the start of the summer. So June at the latest. Um, you know, and, and, you know, who knows at some point, Scott, he might go for an early election. That's one way to bring back the narrative as well. That so was my really, really determined to run. He could spring one on us. That was my next question, Daryl, because we remember what happened during the pandemic. He was very eager to call an election. Now, when people want one, it appears he doesn't want to call one. Could he, he pull a fast one and go, all right, let's go now. Well, he's got perhaps uh, at least the NDP off balance. Yeah, he could very much do that. I mean, he's got he's really got three options, Scott. One of them is he can decide to take a walk in the snow, as we say these days, mm-hmm. uh, as his father did, and as Brian Mulroney did as well. Uh, he could um, uh, decide that uh, he's going to play this out to the very end of, of his term and uh, fight the next election. But, you know, the timing will not be his. It will be the electoral calendar. And, and by the way, his opponent is preparing for that date as well and trying to maximize their opportunity to be really ready to go at that time. Or he could do something and surprise everybody and catch everybody off guard, call a short election campaign like he did during the pandemic, and try and steal back the narrative. So he's got he's got three options. Daryl Bricker, Bricker with us, CEO of Ipsos. Most think Trudeau should resign in 2024. Uh, seven, well, 69%, but 6 in 10 don't believe that he will. Daryl, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. New rules requiring uh, zero emission vehicles 100% by 2035, 20% of all new car sales by 2026, 60% by 2030, and as I mentioned, uh, 100% by 2025. To talk more about all of this, David Booth, senior writer, Post Media Driving, driving driving.ca. David, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, Very well. Thanks very much, Scott. Your thoughts on these targets possible? Uh, What are your thoughts? Um... More complicated than a yes or a no. 
in Quebec and in BC, they'll probably get close. I don't think they'll make it all the way. Um, if you take Canada as, uh, as a total, as a whole, not a whole. How do you mandate sales, uh, especially when there's <laughs> supply and demand issues, uh, pricing issues? How do you say, all right, that's what you're buying now? I, I, how do you make people buy something they don't want? Uh, um, yeah. you know, at least some of the people don't want one. And, uh, and I'm not sure what you do. I think the idea is if you have no choice, you will just succumb and buy one. And, right. You know, there's, there's going to be lots of loopholes. Uh, you know, I mean, there's going to, I mean, what happens? Say Canada does try to go to 100%, and the sta- and the states will not mandate anything. So all that you'll do is, the, like we did back in what 2009, when the dollar was at par with the states, like five percent of our cars were coming up from um, our new cars mm-hmm. were coming up from the st- uh, from the states. You know, and and with this mandate, the penalty for for going. Um, over your limit of I- ICEs, internal combustion engines, is twenty thousand dollars. In other words, if you sell, you know, uh, say in in uh, in uh, in uh, twenty thirty, you sell sixty thousand EVs. That uh, means you could sell forty thousand um, internal combustion engines. Basically, if you go one over, you're going to pay twenty thousand bucks. That's mm. a lot of money to be made bringing, you know, what they call arbitrage. Uh, bringing cars in across from the states, a lot of people are going to make a lot of money doing that. Uh, you talked about other countries. Where are where is the U.S. or the U.K. on this? Well, uh, the U.K. had a twenty thirty five mandate. It's more or less the same uh, twenty thirty mandate. They softened it a bit, um, uh, and now it's twenty thirty five, but with, uh, with with a tougher ramp up. The states has a. Um, uh, an emission standards that will get you unless new technology comes along to 60% BEV by I think 2032. Um, but they have no mandate. I mean, you know, they can't get rid of guns. I mean, how the heck are mm. they going to get rid of just a, a piston engine? You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, uh, I, I, they can't mandate anything, you know, in, 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 in the federal system. Um, uh, in in the United States, certain states have 2035 mandates, like Canada is implementing, California and a few others. In your eye, in your thoughts, David, what is the best way to make this transition? And this is just David Boo speaking, and 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 it, I'm just thinking of the easiest way, the most affordable way to get, yeah, um, to get reduced emissions messaging politics the whole bit and the only thing i'd change is i'd make not just bevs and sometimes phevs plug-in hybrids um uh uh, uh saleable after 2035 i'd include regular hybrids because regular hybrids are barely 1500 2000 dollars more expensive than um than a pure gasoline car and they're an affordable way for those people you know be, be below the threshold that uh, um, can afford a pure BEV. That's a way they can cut emissions and buy a new car. I think if we do that, it's easy to sell. You say electrification instead of electric. I, you know, um, it'll be a compromise. A few people will be upset, but at least you know the people that want to go say drive their truck in the middle of winter to the north of Alberta, hybrids aren't affected by that. So, uh, so it, 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 it's, it's a, it'd be a really good compromise from my point of view, but on the other hand, compromise is not a thing we do well these very, these days. Either. <laughs> um, 10 years from now, a, a lot can change. A, a lot can change with technology. Do we have an accurate grasp of what that world will look like to make these decisions now? Well, the thing is, is uh, we have some idea. I think they're overly optimistic. I mean, solid state batteries are going to come along and uh, and they'll improve things by about 20%. There's some other uh, silicon anodes and stuff like this. But we we need like a complete paradigm shift before this is really going to work for absolutely everybody. Remember, 100% is absolutely everybody, right? You know, it's got to be 30 below zero and I'm taking a long trip. Uh, batteries are not happy at that time, not even solid-state batteries. I, I tell you the biggest question I have, um, and I tell this to everybody that I'm um, that is asking me questions. On December 31st, 2034, uh, 
what do you do? The, 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 I mean, there's, there's scenarios if you're a, a politician. Say the, the uh, 92% of Canadians have adopted um, electric vehicles and, and 8% are holdouts. Well, you can sort of force it down the throats and not worry too much. <laughs> if the number is more like 62 and 36, that's 36% of eligible voters that yeah. will get you in to be prime minister or, or yeah. in government again. And are you really going to alienate 36% of eligible voters? So I would tell you, while people try to sell this, the, this, this, the, the, this mandate as scientific and engineering-based, it's a political one, and it's going to come down to a political decision in the future. David Booth with us, senior writer, Post Media Driving, driving.ca, uh, Canadian roads, zero emission vehicles by 2035. David, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. On the other side, you traveling this winter, this Christmas? We got some tips for you on the way. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, there's some places you should be very careful if you're going and obviously be aware of this before you book and decide where you're going to go. But travel advisories are issued by the Canadian government all the time through Global Affairs Canada. And uh, obviously there are places that are a lot more safer than other. Avoiding all travel, uh, Russia, Ukraine, <laughs> Yemen, Sudan, Iraq, Syria, Venezuela, uh, areas where you should exercise a high degree of caution include France, Egypt, China, uh, Thailand, Brazil, Vietnam, Cuba uh, are some parts of uh, the world that uh, and obviously avoiding non-essential travel to Israel, the West Bank, Gaza Strip, uh, those destinations. So something to be aware of when you are planning tram uh, trips uh, over the holiday season and obviously in a post-pandemic world, it uh, has been quite difficult uh, getting through this, getting people staffed up again, airports back up and running. But it appears that a lot of the problems that uh, we experienced in the last couple of years have uh, have smoothed themselves out, we'll say. And people seem to be still traveling, uh, despite some economic challenges that, uh, that we're experiencing. But I guess if you have to, you have to. Let's bring in Kaylee Align, a travel writer, editor, journalist, and with us now. Kaylee, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well yeah hope you're well as well is it pretty safe to say that uh things are somewhat back to normal traveling i mean whether it's passports lineups delays this sort of thing are we are we getting back on track yeah things are busy i actually just renewed my passports a few weeks ago and the line was around the block so i think people are up and eager and ready to travel uh what about passports because again we remember that was a situation for the longest time any delays anything out of the ordinary for you this time no, it was actually really quick and easy. One major recommendation is if you're going to fill it out in per if you're going to get your passport renewed in person, make sure you fill out the form beforehand. But you can also submit online, by mail, and other ways, depending on when your travel is. You know, they've got the timelines all set out there and it'll be ready for you for when you need it. How long do you suggest people and obviously it's like right away if you ever, even if you're not planning to travel just get it in case uh but what is the normal uh length of time we can expect to wait Yeah so I had travel coming up so I got mine within a week but you know for most people you can get it within a couple of weeks one thing to you know recommend is my passport was not actually uh expiring until April but you need you know sometimes six months, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little less, depending on your destination of validity on your passport before you travel. So make sure you're renewing early just so you have it in hand. And what about Nexus for those that travel a lot and just go in and out and through? Yeah. So for Nexus too, you want to check those expiry dates. I know that there were some leniencies throughout the pandemic, but they're back up and running. Um, you can arrange your interview. If you're traveling to the States, that's a great time to just arrive a little earlier and maybe do your Nexus interview there. But it's super helpful just for the you know, transport of travel and those people who travel often between the U.S. and Canada. All right. What are airfares like right now, Kaylee? Are they expensive? Do they? What is it like right now? Yeah, you know, when it comes to airfares, you could always get a deal if you plan ahead, if you look at, you know, the right destinations or seat promotions, maybe you're using some of your loyalty points to kind of cash those in or do a combination of a little bit of points and cash. But there are ways to get deals now, even though people are worried that airfare might be going up. 
Uh, just expecting the Christmas crunch. Any tips for those? You know, and I think about it now. I don't think I've ever traveled during Christmas because I've just been too scared to. It's just so nuts. Uh, no, I have coming home. So I, I should I, I should say I've traveled home at Christmas, but I haven't gone on a uh, on a destination or a vacation during Christmas. Uh, what can we expect, or what sort of tips do you have for those? Because it is a very busy time. Yeah, I know. There's tons you can do just to make yourself feel ready, whether that's before your trip or even just arriving at the airport. Air Canada is really equipping you to travel like an expert. They've just introduced amazing signage into Toronto Pearson International Air- Airport that lets you know that kind of one, two, three check-in process. So when you check in early online, where you go to a kiosk to print your bag tag, where to drop your bag, how to get to security. So for us frequent travelers and our not so frequent travelers, it just makes it simple. One big recommendation I have is to download mobile app. Air Canada has a free mobile app that's available on the App Store and Google Play. But what I love about it is that I can check in in that 24-hour period before my flight, have my digital boarding pass right on my phone. I get automatic updates to it. I can track my flight. I can see if there are any gate changes. All that information is right there at my fingertip and it's easy to use. And I find that helps take away some of that worry about the holiday season because I can figure out, you know, for my day of travel, what time to arrive. I can use their airport maps navigation for Toronto Pearson International Airport and figure out how long of a walk it is from my gate mm. to maybe the, the the snacks I want to go to order or from security. So it really just helps that navigation and kind of takes some of that worry pre-travel, but also during your day of travel away. It sounds very complicated, Kaylee, but it isn't, is it? And it really does help in that 24-hour period leading up to your departure. Yeah. And I think a little bit before that, you can just make sure that you have all your valid travel documents for your destination, that your ID matches, that you have your government ID that's still valid. Maybe there's entry requirements. So you're checking that out, but you're making sure you've got all of the information there. And then in that 24 hour period, you're good to go because you're all you're doing is, you know, putting your passport in your bag, zipping up your suitcase, checking in on the mobile app and you're ready to go. Travel insurance, who needs it, who doesn't? Do we do we bother? What, what, are your, what are your thoughts? You know what? I would recommend it. There's always like the kind of three tiers of travel insurance. So it's, you know, the people who maybe have existing medical conditions, the people who maybe uh, are traveling and they're just getting it for worry, uh, for like that, that peace of mind. And then there's always the kind of the people who have it built into maybe their credit card or other things and they either want to keep it as is or top up. You know, if you're looking at travel through the holiday season, I would recommend it. You never know what happens, especially if you're traveling internationally, um, just to have that peace of mind for a little injury, you, potentially you get sick on the road, all those little things. It's worth having the insurance. All right. If you've done any travel, especially uh, during or post-pandemic world, you, you know, the big debate versus carry-on or luggage. Man, it's amazing what some people are are trying to pass for carry-on luggage nowadays. I was on a flight recently, and I think they asked for 30 people to check their carry-on stuff. Uh, is it faster? There seemed to be a rush on doing this because luggage was getting lost and, and there were issues during the pandemic. Is this needed now? Can we get back to just traveling the way we normally do? You 100% can. You know, from the airport experience, when you're traveling with Air Canada, you can just print your bag tag right there at the airport. You don't even need to see a gate agent. So it's really easy to kind of drop your check-in luggage at the kiosk um, or print it off at the kiosk, drop it at the bag drop and go. So that makes it really, really seamless. But if you're traveling domestically within Canada, Air Canada has recently introduced some new features to their mobile app. that You can actually track your bags for travel within Canada. So you can see from the moment you drop it to which carousel to pick it up at. And it makes it just, you know, worry-free, seamless, and easy just to understand, you know, all that process. And if you're doing a connection potentially through Canada, you can also see if you need to kind of pick up your bag or all those little steps. So the bag tracking is a huge, huge feature um, and a huge benefit just to give the travelers the peace of mind. Kayleen Aline with us, travel writer, editor, journalist. Uh, if you're taking off over the next week or so, get ready, get the, uh, you know, get everything done or as much as you can do ahead of time. And good luck to you. Kaylee, thanks so much for the time. Happy travels. Happy travels. 
All right. Are you getting <laughs> my my wife has been out and about and she's been telling me some horror stories that have been happening at the mall. But we don't need to go there. I mean, everybody's feeling a little tense. Take a deep breath, uh, maybe two or three and uh, and and open a door and say thank you. It, it'll probably help your and someone else's day. Um, but Christmas shopping and and obviously the rush is on right now. Uh, coming up again, automatic checkouts, automated checkouts. Uh, are they changing? Are they going through a reckoning, as uh, one Globe and Mail uh, article is suggesting? Uh, where does it fit into all of this? Let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID-19. End is here now. Bruce, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me on the program again. So it says, uh, interesting headline in the Globe and Mail, it's going through a reckoning, uh, the self-checkout. I, obviously, you can't see it going anywhere because it saves. It was an inter- interesting point, though, when somebody said, uh, you know, I should get a a discount for checking myself out. Have, have any retailers toyed with that idea? Yeah, I haven't heard of that from any retailers yet. But you know what? That's a fairly common sentiment from consumers, right? Because you're doing a lot of the work for the retailer. They're sort of downloading the work to you and you're not really getting anything out of it. If anything, you you know, we've seen prices go up a lot over the last couple of years. Do you think it would be a good strategy? Are you surprised you haven't heard of this? Yeah, I thought that maybe some retailers might do it, you know, um, but it's, you know, retailers, they never want to sort of lower on price, right? I mean, price is sort of the worst thing you can do as a marketer, you know, right. it's a lot easier to add other benefits that are hard to value and keep your prices at least the same. So not surprised it's not popular. So maybe add points or some sort of value that way. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. I mean, anytime you can do something like that, maybe you get extra loyalty points if you check out your own merchandise. You know, that ha- that's more palatable than, than giving a straight discount. But I don't even think anyone has done that so far. Uh, obviously, it's been around for a while now. I guess we're getting used to it. What's the fallout? Uh, obviously, it's here to stay. It's technology. What have we learned from this? Well, what we've learned is, you know, this thing started, you know, a couple decades ago, got really strong in the last five years. And it seemed like it was a really good idea for everyone involved. Consumers would save time. Retailers would save labor costs. But it sort of backfired a bit. I mean, a lot of consumers don't like it. Some love it. Some don't like it, you know, and they're kind of a little angry saying, hey, well, what about the cashier's job? And even for retailers that, you know, have saved labor, they're giving it back and then some on shoplifting, right? Because it's just so easy to shoplift now if you're Mm. checking out your own merchandise. And retailers have lost a lot on shrink, which is uh, which is theft and some other uh, other loss of inventory as well. Uh, don't get us started on shrinkage. I'm still looking for that extra roll of uh, a row of cookies that have dis- disappeared in my fudgios. But I digress. Oh, yeah. Is this is this a generational thing? Is it, you know, if you're younger, you don't care. If you're older, you care more about this stuff. I haven't seen any data that breaks it out by generation, but my hypothesis is there probably is some type of correlation because you know, if you're a younger person, if you're a Gen Z or millennial, you know, you've used technology for everything in your life. If you're, you know, like myself, you know, a, a Gen Xer and maybe a boomer, you know, you use technology, but, and if you're a senior, you know, maybe a little less. So it probably has some kind of general, generational correlation, but I haven't seen any data on that yet. So what about a reckoning? How has it changed? Has it? Well, you know what? Um, some companies now are starting to take measures, right? Like you look at Walmart, they've started to take out some of their self-checkout in some stores. You know, I read in the article that Target in the U.S. is saying, hey, you can use self-checkout, but maximum 10 items. And some other retailers have set up cameras to sort of spy on the consumer to see if they're really swiping all their items, right? So retailers have had to use countermeasures to try to fight back on some of this shrink. So if it's costing them more to go through a self-checkout in other, you know, in other ways, meaning security and such, uh, and then you've got an aggravated customer, is it worth it? Yeah, it's probably not. You know, it's probably not. That's just that we're getting to the point where it's it's not worth it anymore. And that's why you'll probably see, you know, some stores open up in certain areas, maybe without self-checkout, you know, and what other companies are doing too, like Amazon came out with this technology they mentioned in the article called Just Walk Out, which is being used in a couple of sports arenas and a whole bunch of stores. And that sort of avoids all this, right? You just scan your app, you put some stuff in your buggy, you walk out, it automatically debits you. 
Also, yeah. aisle 24 has used something similar. So there's some new technologies that take sort of self-checkout to the next step. So we might be able to skip this altogether over time. All right, can't let you go, Bruce, that asking about the toy industry. Are they hurting this holiday season? We know that charities are down when it comes to toys because obviously it costs more to purchase and such. Right. Where are the toy Where are the toy retailers these days? Yeah, I'm hearing that toys is pretty soft this year. I know for sure October was soft. You know, they probably did okay on Black Friday, but I think it's just one of those industries that's down a little bit. You know, we've seen what's happened with Mastermind and a few other retailers and suppliers talking about Hasbro laid off some people last week. So I think it's just one of those things that, you know what, a lot of people bought a lot of toys during the pandemic, maybe mm. a little less now. Probably basic toys are doing okay, but some of the high-priced TV items might be a little softer than usual. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID-19. Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Happy shopping. Yeah, you too, Scott. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. How can the international community disrupt organizations like Hamas? Where is this discussion going moving forward over the weekend? Just yesterday, uh, Toronto malls, whether it's Yorkdale or um, uh, the Toronto Eaton Centre, uh, protesters, pro-Palestinian protesters, um, intimidating shoppers and such, uh, confronting police. Uh, and some pretty uncomfortable videos and e- even threatening police. And, and and many are questioning where this is going. Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School, specializing in foreign policy and is here now, University of Toronto. Jack, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. Uh, yes, thanks so much. We're hearing so much about these protests and such, and you know, for some, it's getting pretty scary and 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 questioning how this is uh, allowed to go on. Um, do we need to define whether this is about Hamas or Palestinians? I believe I may have asked this question before. Do Palestinians support what Hamas is doing? Do they support their leadership? It's tough to say how many Palestinians support what Hamas is doing, but a fair number do, and a fair number of their supporters in Canada are at least willing to turn a blind eye to what Hamas does. In terms of the uh, the protesters, yes, the, uh, the right to protest peacefully is uh, is a core uh, civil right, and it, and it should be safeguarded. But that doesn't include the um, the liberty to intimidate people, to uh, push and shove and harass. And I would like to see that enforced more vigorously than I suspect it has been on some occasions. Uh, would Palestinians get more support in this country if they separated themselves from Hamas or made that distinction? Yes, absolutely. I think there's, there's a considerable amount of sympathy for the Palestinian aspiration to statehood. But uh, at, at the same time, there is... Um, a perfectly understandable and, and, and reasonable apprehension that uh, that causes tied in with uh, with that of Hamas. Nobody wants to see a a a, a full fledged uh, terrorist state established. Why? Or and I know this is much more complicated than what I'm suggesting here. But why don't they move towards that more? Um, do Palestinians realize? that selling Canadians on Hamas is a pretty tough sell? A lot of them don't. And, and I don't know how we can uh, persuade them otherwise. I mean, all the, all the, all the logical the survey data suggests public revulsion of anything associated with Hamas, rightly so. But uh, the Palestinians do have an obligation to say that what Hamas does is, uh, is not done on their behalf, is not, should not be considered as done in their name. The Prime Minister a few days ago sided with the UN, uh, UN and asked for a ceasefire, as symbolic as that is. Many say that that's what it is, and it's tough to get terrorist organizations to a, a ceasefire. Um, but has, has the Prime Minister siding with the UN and asking for that ceasefire, has that helped the situation with those Palestinians in Canada? Are they supporting him as a result of that? Well, I think so far, Justin Trudeau has managed to antagonize people on pretty much every side of this issue, which is which which takes some doing. But one of the problems with his current position is that it's fundamentally incoherent. 
the actual wording of the UN resolution that was passed is fundamentally different from that of the statement that, uh, that the Prime Minister issued along with his Australian and New Zealand counterparts. Uh, one explicitly calls on Hamas to, uh, to disarm and, and behave peacefully and release all hostages. The, uh, the other uh, does not. You can't have it both ways, and that's what uh, Mr. Trudeau was trying to do. Yeah. I think I think one of the problems here is the uh, the big cleavage in Canadian society on this issue runs through the uh, the Liberal Party's voting constituency, runs through its caucus, and he's trying to please everybody, which uh, which can't be done. Uh, do Palestinians accept, or would they accept a two state solution? Is that possible? Uh, some would, some would not. Uh, they're certainly being uh, indoctrinated by uh, by Hamas in in Gaza and in the UN-run schools not to. And one of one of the, one of the real scandals of uh, of Canadian foreign policy is that uh, we we generously fund the UN Relief and Works Administration, which provides social services to Palestinians. A lot of that money goes to education, and some of that goes to textbooks that explicitly deny that. Uh, that Israel exists, that it should exist, and that uh, paint the Holocaust as a Zionist myth. What should we do when we're seeing intimidation, like we're seeing the footage of of the Toronto Eaton Center uh, and police being threatened and such? How do we handle that? And are you concerned that that will escalate things if we if police do try to handle it? I think turning a blind eye to uh, physical violence or the threat of physical violence just encourages more of the same. What we need to do is enforce their existing laws. That's not too much to ask. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. All right, let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst. Lots to talk about, whether it's a uh, a youth, a, a, a teen in Ottawa, arrested on uh, allegedly planning a terrorist attack, or uh, the footage we're seeing, the video we're seeing uh, over the course of this weekend on Sunday, uh, whether it's at uh, Toronto's Eaton Centre or Yorkdale or such, uh, groups of Palestinian protesters... Um, harassing shoppers as they're going through and threatening and even threatening a police officer. The one video showing uh, uh, one protester saying, I'm going to put you six feet under. It was very, very alarming. And as much sympathy as people have for those that are innocent and being killed in war, at what point do we draw uh, a line here and say, this is too much. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Being very well, Scott. It's my birthday, so I'm doing very well today. Thank you. Is it? Well, happy birthday, Phil. If I'd known that, I mean, we wouldn't have bugged you on your birthday, or at least I would have oh, got you something nice. A better person to talk to my birthday than Scott Thompson. Well, thank you, <laughs> Really? That's enlightening. No mean to bring you down, Phil, but let's talk about the issues of the world. Uh, before we, you know, yeah, before we uncork a bottle of champagne here. All right. So what do you what do you think when you see those uh, the images, uh, the video of, of what's going on in shopping malls, whether it's Christmas decorations being upheaved or, or upheaved or, or people being harassed or even police being challenged? Uh, when does this get too far? You know, you raise a really good point. And, and you said in your introduction, and you're absolutely right, Scott, people's emotions are very high now about what's happening in Gaza. We've all seen the footage of babies being bandaged. We've heard of reports of civilians being killed. A lot of anger going around. And I, and I think it's, people obviously have a right to protest in Canada. We're a liberal secular democracy, and this is what we fought hard for, you know, over the wars to, to ensure mm-hmm. those freedoms. Uh, but, but there's a limit. And you can't start harassing people, uh, preventing people from shopping, threatening police officers. That does cross the line. Now, I've since been, you know, heard from police officers. They, I mean, they're used to this. They're used to being yelled at and screamed at. But when you start threatening people, that, that goes a little bit too far. And I would think in that case, you could lay charges. But then again, if you were to arrest somebody, you might make the situation worse. So I'll leave it to the cops to decide when to act and when not to act in those, in those circumstances. 
that's what intimidation is, uh, bring in more people so nobody does react. Are we there yet? I mean, you know, again, it would have been interesting to see if all of a sudden that person who did make the threat was actually apprehended. Um, and maybe, I don't know, public opinion would change. Nobody wants to see anything like that. But it, what? where is the line, I guess I'm asking you, Phil? Because if yeah. you or I did that, we'd be in cuffs. Well, and yeah, and, and, and I think you're absolutely right. And we have seen, you know, protests where people are legitimately concerned about these civilian casualties. But we've seen protests where Hamas flags are being flown, and people are calling Hamas freedom fighters and anti-colonial forces. And let's face it, Scott, I mean, none of this would be happening if Hamas hadn't killed 1,200 people in Israel on October the 7th. Israel is in, in Gaza for the holidays. They're there to, to try to find the Hamas terrorists who carried that attack. So I, I think we got to be careful. I think, again, if you want to protest peacefully and ask for ceasefires, that's one thing. But to actually engage in any kind of altercation, threaten people, that does cross the line. And I do agree with you that I think some action should be taken by law enforcement. Um, I've, I've asked many times, I've asked experts, uh, how does, how do the Palestinian people separate themselves from Hamas? And at the end, I'm not sure how many want to separate themselves from Hamas. Um, if that is the case and the majority of Palestinians don't want to separate themselves from Hamas, once Canadians realize this, won't this discussion change greatly? 100%, because Hamas is a listed terrorist entity in Canada and it has yeah, been for quite yeah. some time. And when are it CSIS? This is, CSIS is responsible for making those things in the first place. And, you know, they've called for attacks in the West. And, they, you know, you may have heard that Germany and the Netherlands and Denmark just arrested some people yeah. planning a terrorist tax in, in that. So it is going to change the conversation. So we know why Hamas is there, Scott, is because the Palestinian Authority has been corrupt, has done nothing for the Palestinian people in the West Bank for decades. Hamas was kind of the plan B. But if, if Plan B is a terrorist group, then the Palestinians who are backing Hamas have to realize they're going to lose a lot of liberty in the West and maybe to go to Plan C, whatever Plan C is, because Plan B ain't working either. All right, let's talk about the situation in Ottawa. A youth arrested can be identified uh, because of, of their age and such. What, what is your take on this in order to get to this stage? Yeah, I'm a little disappointed. I, I fully understand why youth can't be named, because obviously they're young people. You don't want to sort of label them for life. But I am disappointed that the nature of the attack planning was identified. So was this a far-right plan? Was it a jihadi plan? I, I'm leaning towards the latter on this one, Scott, that it was some kind of Islamist extremism because it targeted you know, allegedly Jewish institutions. I need to know that at first to see where we're going. Um, and as you and I have discussed on many occasions, this form of terrorism, so the ISIS and the Al-Qaeda of this world, is still a dominant form of terrorism. It was a dominant form when I worked at CSIS, we were investigating. So I'm not surprised in the least that the emotions running high over Gaza have led some Canadians to decide, maybe if I start attacking institutions or attacking malls, I'm going to make my point. So no, I'm not surprised at all at this news. Where do you think this goes, especially with it being a, a young person? Uh, I read some uh, early stuff you know, from his father and such, had no idea this was going on, blah, 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 blah. Is this, is this a serious issue, or is this someone who, as we've talked many times, is just spouting off? It could be both. And, you know, certainly in my time working in security intelligence, the vast majority of people, and you and I have had this conversation, you know, couldn't organize a piss-up in a bar and have no intention mm. of doing so. The problem is if you're the RCMP, you, you, you have to make that call. Is this guy worth investigating? Is he worth arresting? In other words, I'm going to go on a limb and say the RCMP had enough evidence to charge this young, young man because they thought he was actually serious about doing something. As to no one noticing it happening, I'm sorry, that's not true. Um, radicalization is a process that people do notice. It could be parents, it could be friends, it could be your teachers, your religious instructors. There were signs this kid was going down the wrong road. And let's face it, going back to the Toronto 18, you remember them for 15 years or 20 years ago almost mm. now, Scott, there were five young offenders amongst that group as well. So 15-year-olds can, in fact, plan acts of terrorism in Canada. Will we hear very little about this as some feel this will just uh, heat things up? Well, again, I think authorities have to be careful. But, but again, there's the public's right to know as well. I mean, we have to know what was mm -hmm. the nature of this plot and how serious was it. If there's enough evidence to go forward, a trial will be held. He'll be tried, you know, before you know, jury of his peers or before a judge. And if he's found guilty, then we'll have to decide that. Given the serious nature of the allegations, if he is found guilty, he could be sentenced as an adult. But 
you know, the you know, wheels of justice turn stolen in this country. It could be three or four years before a trial is held. So you and I could be having this conversation in 2028, as far as I'm concerned, Scott, and maybe we'll mm. find out more by that point. Yeah, followed by a big, long lawsuit after that. Um, uh, getting back to the uh, Israeli-Hamas uh, conflict, the PM uh, sided with the UN for the symbolic ceasefire, however you know uh, valid any of that is. That doesn't seem to have cooled the hostilities around the Palestinian protest. Do you think that it will? No, I don't. Because, see, we're, we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. So Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, wants to destroy Hamas. He's not going to be able to do that. But he has, you know, Israel has a legitimate reason to go after Hamas, given the nature of the attack on, on October the 7th. But the problem is, is that this issue of Islamist terrorism, in this case Hamas, has been around for a great deal of time and will continue. And uh, there'll be more civilian casualties, more Hamas terrorists will be killed as well. But we're also seeing more Hamas attacks in Israel and attacks from the West Bank mm. by other Palestinians. So, you know, it's kind of like a merry-go-round, Scott. Uh, it just keeps going round and round and round, and there's no solution in sight, I'm afraid. On that note, try to have a happy birthday, Phil. Uh, <laughs> Phil Kursky with us, president of Borealis Rhett and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, and even on the birthday, he's getting into the business. Phil, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Take care. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Read him in your spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. I see you have Jeff Manishin, criminal lawyer, coming on a little later on on your show. Uh, in regard to the line, I'll put you six feet deep, which uh, was what a Palestinian protester said to a Metro Toronto police cop uh, at the Eaton Centre this week. This stuff has gotten way way out of hand what are your thoughts on what we've seen or what we've been witnessing i i agree with you and you know i understand that the it seems anyway that the position has been well let's not exacerbate the situation by making arrests or whatever but i would argue that if that's the decision that was made by police or politicians it's a decision that is now shown to be a completely terrible idea because as you're right, we are now at the point, we have Molotov cocktails being thrown at synagogues. We have people standing in front of large crowds screaming for the, the eradication of the Jews. We have people in front, right in front of police with cameras rolling, threatening someone. The very definition of what a threat is, if you look it up in the criminal code hmm. and nothing happens. What are we waiting for, Scott? I mean, is, is the, is the argument here that we're going to, you know, no one's really done anything yet. Well, the Molotov cocktails, but no one's died. So until that happens, we're not going to do anything. Well, what are we waiting for? I, cause I believe me, if I walked up to someone else in a mall and there was a cop standing there and I turned to them and I said, I'm going to kill you. I know exactly what would happen to me if I, especially if it was on camera, I would be charged and I should be charged. That's why we have these laws. Uh, I think Canadians are in, in their woke way and their big hearted ways are confusing things here, because for me, this is not about uh, is uh, Palestinians versus Israelis, one religion against another religion, left versus right. This is freedom and democracy versus authoritarian terrorism. And it, until or when and if they do, I'm not sure make uh, uh, Palestinians make their position known on how they feel about Hamas, if the majority of Palestinians support Hamas, this discussion in Canada is going to change drastically. And I'm not sure Canadians are ready for that discussion yet. Uh, how many people were, the, did we not hear reports of people in the, and look, I'm not, uh, this is not a discussion about whether the trucker protest was good or bad or indifferent, but did we not hear reports of people being mm. arrested? There's a trial going on now that's been going on for like five months. It's a joke. For something that, uh, and there were uh, allegations of threats, but they were like muted threats. They were muted threats. They were, they were, you know, sort of implied threats. Here you have a direct threat in mm -hmm. a protest taking over a mall where people are getting their kids' pictures taken with Santa and nothing happens. What's the difference? Where's yeah. the difference? Why is one against the law when the law says it's against the law and one is not against the law? I don't, this, you know what this made me think of today, Scott? And we're going to talk with Jeff Manishin about this. This was to me a throwback to how many years ago now was the whole Caledonia thing where mm -hmm. the OPP stood down and wouldn't do anything about it. Oh, right, yeah. And, you know, when you say we don't want to make this rise to something bigger. 
what you're saying is we don't want to make it rise to something bigger against that group, but we're willing to let the other group be victimized even more. That's what you've decided. It's like a referee in a, in a, in a game say, I'm not going to call that trip because I don't want to be the focus of the game. But if you don't call that trip, you're saying that team not being the focus of the game is more important than the team whose player was tripped, right? You can't, you, this is why we have laws. This is why we have a justice system. This is why we have a criminal justice system is because these laws are on the books. So when you break them, you get charged. And if the police thought, well, I'm not really sure, you know how we generally do this in the country? If the police who see something believe it's a crime, they charge the person and then the courts sort out whether or not the person is guilty. We don't ever leave it just in the hands of the police to be the Mm -hmm. judges and juries. That's not how this is supposed to work. I just, to me, it's a colossal failure. The Toronto police honestly look cowardly in this. They look inept. I felt, I felt sorry for them. I felt sorry for them because I'm not talking about the officers. I'm not talking about the officers there specifically. They may have been told to stand down for all. I'm sure they were. Yeah. Yeah. So I, it just, it looks horrendous. It looks horrendous. And it looks like the message is being sent that anybody can say anything about any Jewish person and nothing is going to be done. And if you are a Jewish person, how are you supposed to feel safe at all in that situation? Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news, the Scott Radley show, read him in your Hamilton spectator. Thank you. Have a great one, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This text from Jim, there are great words that I live by that came from the great Keith Richardson, the birthday boy, and that phrase is... Truly brings a tear to your eye.